I'm really honored to be here this, uh, this weekend. Here's one thing that um, I kind of want st- to talk about as we first get started, because um, if you're anything like me, then I think one of my, you have like pet peeves in life, things you really just don't appreciate when people do it. I think um, one of mine was, uh, and I think particularly for the generation that's s- like sitting before me is this, y'all have seen some stuff. Like um, your generation, just f- f- some quick statistics, you're the most depressed, anxious generation that's ever lived before. You have, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, no one argues with that. Everyone's like, for sure, yeah. Um, but you've also seen some stuff, right? Like you're the, you're the, you're screenagers, so you have like everything at your fingertips, but you can go online and look at everything else. And so, it feels like from a really young age, y'all were introduced to like some of the heaviest junk in the world. And then I think it can feel weird, especially when you come into a church setting and then the person talking from the stage treats you like your babies. You know what I mean? Like, you, like y'all have seen some stuff. Y'all know some stuff. And so here's my commitment that I want to make to you jumping into this weekend is we're going to talk about some really uh, like pretty heavy stuff. And then um, also the, the Bible is like a, it's a pretty offensive document if you haven't read it before. Um, like Jesus was crucified and it wasn't like a mistake. Like people really wanted that dude dead. And, and I think... Maybe kind of the, the pill that we've been fed as a society about what Christianity is, is there's this Jesus who means for nothing else than to infiltrate your life and just sprinkle some like spiritual fairy dust on your existence and to add into what you're already doing, but he intends that you continue to live as you were living, but let's go to church every once in a while. And, 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 and I think that, that that version of Christianity has, has become so dis- disinteresting to you, and I think so often... Um, the church has done a really bad job at, maybe I should say, has done a really good job at answering questions that none of y'all are asking. They've done a really great job at really explaining things that you're not interested in whatsoever. And, and so I think the book of Ecclesiastes is really interesting. It's got a really big, dumb name. But it, essentially, the book of Ecclesiastes is about the most wealthy man who's ever lived, who if you imagine kind of like the pinnacle of the society— I, I love this one guy named Jay Warner Wallace. He's like an FBI negotiator or FBI uh, detective. And he says whenever he comes onto a homicide scene and he sees that someone's been killed, he only has one question. He says, which of the three is it? To which you respond, what do you mean which of the three is it? He says, human beings kill other human beings for only one of three reasons. And these three reasons are the pinnacle idols of our culture, sex, money, and power. If you find someone dead, you have one question. Was it for sex? Was it for money? Or was it for power? When you can answer that question, it, it, it underpins everything. And, and while we claim to be really new and really different and generationally juxtaposed to the one before us, really what you'll find out is, is we're just kind of reiterating the same things. When you start reading the book of Ecclesiastes, it almost feels like someone took my diary, like took our diary as a culture, and 3,000 years ago started talking about stuff that we're just kind of starting to talk about as a church. And, um, but in my life has been pretty significant. So let me just introduce you to my story a little bit. And, and I, I'm sorry for any, if it becomes across as offensive or a little bit heavy, but um, after my wife gave birth to our fifth kid named Finley two and a half years ago, uh, she fell into mental illness, a pretty heavy version of mental illness, which culminated in insomnia and a pulmonary embolism, which then led to psychosis and schizophrenia. And then after uh, four months of battling, she took her own life. And so two years ago, I lost my wife to suicide as a pastor with five kids and widowed. And, uh, and, and then you're, you're, now you're in the church and you just become, as people like get up and they preach sermons, but they preach some sort of like um, kind of pie in the sky God. I just remember thinking to myself, uh, if Jesus could only see what was happening inside my mind, I don't think he'd want anything to do with me. Like, 
if God could listen to the innermost thoughts of my heart, I'm not quite sure that I would, I would fit in church. And, it, and, it, and I was really confused because I, I, mean, like I grew up in, in Oklahoma in the Midwest and moved up to California when I was like 12 or something like that. But in the South, church is like, it's bananas, man. Like my mom's hair was here and it was like the higher the hair, the closer to heaven. And, but then you, like I had two brothers and we would go to church and, you know, my mom would like scream at us and my dad was a pastor, but we had all this like internal like friction as a family and, and, you know, there was just weird things that you would see and that would go on. And then it, but then it's like the church all agreed that you had like the social contract that once we sit down in pews, we're all going to act like we've got our crap together. Can I say crap? We've all got our stuff together. We've all got, um, we've kind of got it figured out. And, and so maybe this has been the Christianity that you've been fed is that Christianity is that for those who have everything figured out or those who aren't struggling with things or, or that um, aren't questioning bigger things or have never uh, had any sort of existential despair or have never considered suicide or aren't walking through self-harm or don't know neglect or abuse. And it, what's so interesting to me is when you stop letting the world and like Christian like church culture tell you about Jesus and you actually open the text, you find someone who's really ready to talk about the things that you didn't think he wanted to talk about. When you open up the text and you don't just take someone's word for it who maybe hasn't been through different things, when you actually look at the person of Jesus, what you find is here's what the scripture talks about. In Isaiah verse chapter 53, when it's talking about Jesus, it says he's gonna be a man who's um, of no appearance that you would behold him. He was a, Jesus, this is, this might be different for us. He, he was an unattractive man. He probably stood about five foot four. It said that if you walked by him in the street, you wouldn't even turn. So if you were, if you were in camp with Jesus right now, which you're not, maybe um, you're not, but we can all hope, but he's, he's not here. Um, but if you did, if you like walked by him in the line, you'd probably cut him in line because he would be smaller. And it says of no repute. Okay. He wasn't popular. He wasn't cool. He wasn't any of these things. But our culture falls on its knees before him. And, and this is a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago, and yet you and I can't get him off of our calendar. We're in the year 2024, which is literally just 2,024 years since he came back from the dead. We, we just we, There's something about this guy that has changed everything. And my fear is that you've been fed a cultural Jesus that doesn't want to talk about your pain, that doesn't want to deal with the heavy questions of life, that isn't there for the, the big pain and the big hurt that you're experiencing. And so you've kind of written off Christianity as like this crutch for the weak-minded old woman who wants to believe there's something there after death. And, and growing up as a high schooler, I didn't believe that God was real. I didn't think that he existed. But my atheism kind of led me to this point of existential despair that, that Solomon's going to kind of talk about here in, in this passage. If you guys have your Bibles, we're going to open up there at, at this point. If you don't have a Bible, Hume Lake's going to give you one. Um, Kyle, is that right? Fantastic. There's Melinda in the back. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. They're going to bring you a Bible. And you can, if you don't have a Bible, you can keep it. Here's why, I, um, here's why I want you to read along with me, because I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see the text for yourself. And we're going to be opening up the scripture every time we meet together and talking about some uh, hard things. But I, I don't want to be another person in your long litany of people that you just take their word for it. I want you to see the text for yourself. So if you have your Bibles, we're looking for the book of Ecclesiastes, which means the called out ones or someone calling things to order. And this is what Solomon is doing. Old Testament, so it's towards the, the front of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 
Isaac, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Now I don't, I can't find it in my own Bible, so maybe we'll, maybe we'll go somewhere else, whatever bu book I land on. Here we go. Good. Okay, so if you're new to the Bible, Ecclesiastes is the title right there, and then we're looking for the big number one. If you're sitting next to like a, a lifelong Christian or like a homeschool kid, they'll find it for you really quickly. They do sword drills for fun. They're just like, find Psalms. They're like, got it, nailed it. So they have to help you because that's what Christians do. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Okay, so just so that we kind of start on the same page as we're entering into this book, um, as Solomon, let me just read the very first part of it for you. Here's what it says. Here's the background to Solomon that you need to understand. Solomon is worth $2.1 trillion in modern finances, okay? So um, if, if, if scripture is to be believed, he pulled in $2.1 billion per year for all of the years that he was in the kingship, and then... He was given elaborate gifts of gold and um, galleases, all these different things from foreign kings and queens, because he was the wisest man who's ever lived. God literally almost gave him a genie moment, and they said, what do you want? God said, what do you want? What can I give you? And Solomon could have asked for anything, but he asked for wisdom. And in his request for wisdom, he understood things that no one else had understood. He was able to navigate the kingship better than anyone else. And people came from all over the world to talk to him because he was such an enlightened fellow. So as such, he accrued such money, but he also, in the middle of his reign, he was so rich, he, he actually writes a book called Proverbs, which is full of passages that some of you one day will get tattooed on your body because that's what Christians do. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 Solomon's going to write, and he says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Beautiful, right? Very poetic, very cute language. Trust in the Lord. I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get feet on my feet. I'm going to tattoo a pair of feet on my feet. It'll be like poetic. Um, and trust you, he, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Well, here's what happens. Solomon, he writes that, and it's, it's like before he gets jaded. And then Solomon, after accumulating all this wealth, he starts to make concessions in his life. And instead of trusting in the Lord with all of his heart, he begins to see that there's so much pleasure to be had in the world. Like, just imagine if you had, an, literally speaking, you had an infinite amount of money. Money was absolutely no object. So everything you saw, you bought. Everything that looked delicious, you ate. Everyone that you came into contact with in that culture as a king, you bedded them. You could just say, I want her to be my wife. I want her to be in my bed. I want He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That means that he, he would make treaties with foreign nations, and he would do so through females. So he would talk to another king, and he'd say, um, I want to make a peace treaty with you, and everyone was like, for sure. What can we do for you? And he's like, I'll take three of the women, your favorite women. So he would just take, right, which if you look at the scriptures, he might go, how could God allow this to happen? Read Solomon's story. The guy was an absolute train wreck, right? He's like, what is, what's wrong with you? And, and he, he keeps allowing those pleasures to dictate his life. Even though at the beginning of his life, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
It's really difficult once you start to find worldly success to continue to trust in the Lord. It was easy as a young man who's David's son. He builds, a, he builds a temple that you can still visit to this day. You can go visit the Solomonic temple in Israel. The stones that Solomon helped lay, you can go there. This is our archaeologically founded. All of the evidence of the scriptures. I'm a, a professor of theology and apologetics, and that's my other profession is I, I work at a college. But I, I also debate people in a collegiate setting about the existence of God. So as a growing up atheist, I then found all this evidence that God is real, that the Bible is voracious, that the, the text actually took place, that archaeology defends all this stuff, which if you think like me, that's really helpful because you don't just take it on blind faith. You need evidence for it. There is evidence for all of these things, and I can tell you that without going too far into it because we've got to get into the text. But as such, as, as he begins to indulge in these things, the things of this world become really appetizing to him. And here's what you're going to find. If you start telling yourself the lie that if you get enough fill in the blank, if you get enough fill in the blank, the scripture says that your heart has turned to love that thing. So if you love money, have you ever met someone who's got enough money that they're like, that's it. I'm kosher. I don't need money anymore. If someone truly loves money, money to them becomes almost like a bottomless pit. You just got to keep fulfilling it. You got to keep doing it. And, and, and we recognize this. I'm going to show you a video here that we're going to play. And what it was is I went on this journey and I said, because kind of what's, what's got to be terrifying for us is that we're all climbing some sort of proverbial mountain in our lives, right? You and I have all, if, especially if we're not in Christ, have told ourselves, if I achieve X, I'll be happy. Right? If y'all are the most depressed and anxious generation of all time, something really interesting happened. There were all these promises that technology made to you and to us as a culture. And in 2006, the idea of like social media was born. And now, at your fingertips, you could talk to people on the other side of the planet, and you had 1,000 friends and 18,000 followers, and everyone was just crushing it. And it's like, look, we, have, we finally have stasis in our world. We finally have joy. We can all talk to each other. Look how many friends I have. And something really weird happened. The opposite of everything we were promised occurred. And from the year 2007 to the year 2024, people your age are 100% more likely than people before to commit suicide. People in your generation have a 100% better odds of killing themselves than they did before any of these promises rolled out. And why? Because at least before we were all connected, we could believe the fable that one day all of our problems will be fixed because someone's going to come up with technology to fix it. Someone's going to make it really easy. Someone's going to... And just think about this for a second. It's going to be really easy for us to go, well, if I had Solomon's money, things would be simple. I've got two things to respond to that. Number one, Solomon with $2.1 trillion worth of gold can, couldn't do anything that you can do. How many of y'all have been on an airplane? What would $2.1 trillion do for you in the year 1000 BC so that you could see this, you could see the ground from, from 30,000? You couldn't do it. You might have gone scuba diving. You might have been to a zoo where you have animals from all over the planet. You might have visited foreign countries, and you might have gotten there in about 10 to 15 hours. These are all things that Solomon couldn't have ever hoped to have done. So here's the problem as we enter the conversation. You're going to look at Solomon and go, easy for you to say, you're rich. Friend, you're rich. You can't go, well, <laughs> it's different because he had all this wealth, and that's what really hurt him. Solomon is writing. I want you to think of it like this. At the end of a week of spending 
as much money as he wanted after sleeping with a compendium of 50 to 80 women and him sitting down having drank all the most delicious wine from all the foreign countries, he puts pen to papyrus on, on his desk and he starts to write these words. He has tasted all the indulgences of the world. Everything is at his pleasure. Everyone says, yes, sir, how many and when, all the time. People do whatever they tell them to do, like you would with DoorDash, right? Beep, 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 a burrito, right? You go, well, he had servants. Y'all, you have servants, right? You tip the dude $2, he drives across town and brings you a burrito. You're like, man, it'd be so nice to have servants. What do you think that is? It's all right here, and yet we have some idea that, man, it'd be crazy to be rich. Here's what he writes. After indulging in everything, he writes this. Verse 2, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is utterly meaningless. What do people gain from their labor at which they toil under the sun? So here's what's important. Solomon, Solomon right here, is, he's creating parameters. And he, at the whole rest of the book of Ecclesiastes all pivots around this idea. This is important to catch. Solomon isn't, is saying, if you were to just think that the world you can see is all there is, if there is no God, if there's no heaven above, if there's no real reason for you existing, if all that there was in the world was material things, leptons, protons, neutrons, electrons, if only what we see and we can see, taste, feel, touch, and if only the things that were sensible, if only the things that this world without God cared about, if the only thing that there was was that which was under the sun and you won every game you could possibly play under the sun, you've got all the money, you've got all the women, you've got all the power, you've got all the fame, you've got all the riches, you've got all the servants, you've got all of everything. He says, I've tasted and I've seen. And it's almost this, he almost writes as a loving father would write to his son. And again, he sounds a little bit drunk here. And he probably was. He'd probably been drinking wine from Africa and this from the Cape of this, whatever. And he's sitting here and he's writing, why? Why do I have it all? And I can't stand myself. Why do I have everything this world could possibly want? And yet when I'm alone, I hate who I'm with. It's meaningless. Why do people, what do people gain from all the labor at which they toil under the sun? Look, generations come and they go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets and hurries back to where it's, it rises. The wind blows to the south, it blows to the north, it goes round and round. Everything on its course, streams flow in the sea, the sea doesn't get full. The place that streams come from, they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What kind of acts do you think the, most, the richest man of all time has seen? He has seen juggling from the four corners of the globe. He has seen fire eaters. He has seen dancers. He has seen erotica. He has seen everything. And he says, the eye has seen everything and it wants more. The ear has heard everything. The flute, the lyre, the trumpet, the everything. And it still wants more. Who told my eyes to be insatiable? Who told my ears they need to hear more? Where did my brain get this idea that I can have everything that money can buy and I'm still hopelessly alone? Not just that. The more that I get, the more I feel alone. Here he continues. What has, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Is there any of that we, we can look at and say, look, that's something new. It was here already long ago before our time. No one remembers the former generations. So he's, now he's, he's attacking your legacy. You might be here going, oh, well, don't you worry, because I'm going to make a name for myself. It's going to be important. What's your name? Yeah. You a Dodgers fan? My man. Let's go. Jackson, you stop it, Giants fans. You're just mad. You haven't been relevant for a long time. Padres? Yeah. Guys, not very good. Okay. Um, Jackson, what's your great-grandfather's and great-grandmother's name? Nice. What's your great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother's name? It's wild. What's your name? Luke, what's your great-grandpa's name? Mike? What's your great-grandma's name? Lucy. Do you know what their parents' names are? I don't know. I don't know what my great-grandpa's name is. It's 12% of my DNA comes from that guy, and I'm like, I don't know. George? If you did a test and I told you how many of you can name three generations above you, which that DNA still flows through your veins, the reason your nose looks like it does, does is because of the guy that you don't know his name. Your alleles and your whole DNA system can be up to 6.5% of those people from two generations before you, and you don't even know who they are. And this is what Solomon is saying. You, don't, you can't even leave a lasting mark. You want to leave a lasting mark, you need to like go and kill a bunch of people. That's really what you got to do. If you want to be remembered in our culture, you have to do something egregious. You either like invent the Tesla or you have to do something terrible. Those are the names in history we remember. Tell me I'm wrong. You know who committed genocide. You know who, who killed everyone in the Russian Revolution. You know all those things. And you also know people like Mother Teresa who hung out with the deplorables. And you know Elon Musk and Justin Bieber. Right? These <laughs> The Biebs. Um, those are your options. You're either infinitely evil or infinitely talented. What hope is there for all of us in between? None. I don't even know my great-great-grandpa's name. In fact, last year I found out that my grandpa wasn't my real grandpa because 23andMe told me that my dad's dad wasn't his real dad. I don't even know who I am. My last name isn't Hilkin, even though technically that's on your paper. It's a lie. I have no clue what my last name is. But here I am, just floating in the ether of earth. Hopefully I've got meaning. Who knows? This is what Solomon is saying, right? It's kind of despairing, right? It's kind of a sad. <laughs> it gets worse. Okay, here we go. No one remembers them, not even those yet to come. No one will be remembered by those who follow them. And so he's kind of making this overarching statement that I'm going to guess no one here disagrees with. Whether you're a Christian in this room, you're an atheist in this room, whatever sort of identity you've brought into this room, wherever you come from, whatever your thought on Jesus is, whatever it is, I think there's like, I don't even know if I could find two things we're unified on, right? Like, even things that most of us would agree on, like Taylor Swift, the GOAT, right? Like, most of us would be like, for sure. There's still haters in this room who are like, no, man, no, man, Dixie Chicks were the stuff. You know, like, so you're something weird. You have, like, some opinion about stuff. You're the same kind of people who like books more than movies. It's like, I get it. Great, you read books, fantastic. But the movies are better, right? It is, it is what it is. But we can't even agree on stuff that most people agree on, right? Someone in here likes mint chip ice cream, right? It's like, what is wrong with you? It's not real. It's toothpaste. But, but if I, I think there's like maybe the most 
universal statement I can make is the one that Solomon's making. This, there's something wrong with this world, right? And you might, you might, you might come to conclusions on why, or you might have reasons behind it, and you might vitriolically in your mind be thinking, yeah, because it's about those people. Those people ruined it. It doesn't matter. You and I all agree on one thing. This place is broken. It's just not how it should be. There's something that we can all say, but where did that come from? Where did this idea that this, which is the only world we know, should be better? C.S. Lewis wrote about it this way. I, the only reason I know that a stick is crooked is because I've seen a straight stick, and I put them next to each other, and I go, that one's a straight stick, that one's a crooked stick. So what am I doing calling this world crooked? Why would I, what, what sense do I have that this world is broken? Why do I find in myself, C.S. Lewis says, desires which nothing in this life can satisfy? He comes to this conclusion. Former atheist, then becomes Christian apologist. He says this. The only reasonable explanation for why I can feel so lost in this world is that I was made for a different one. That's why this world feels so crooked. And I'm going to, just to make matters worse, the, the, you're like, stop. Okay, listen. The hope, at least, that we have as people is some of us, we, like our, we liken ourselves athletes. You might liken yourself an intellectual. You might want to be rich someday. You might want to be successful one day. So I did this little adventure where I went online, and I found people who are at the end of whatever road you're looking for. The richest people on planet Earth, the most famous people on planet Earth, the, the wealthiest people on planet Earth, and the greatest athletes on planet Earth. I'm going to play a little bit. I might cut it off quick uh, before then, so just heads up. But just watch this and tell me if you can relate to this. I had bought into the not uncommon notion that when I taste success, when I get over there, then I'll be happy. But the strangest thing happened. As the show got more successful, I got more depressed. I think everyone's insecure, yeah, of course I'm insecure. Every, every, everyone I know is insecure. I, don't, I think successful people are overly insecure because you have people kind of poking holes in you the whole time. Quite honestly, I just didn't want to be alive. It was a really, really, really crazy time for me, and, and I'm still struggling weekly or, yeah. you know, from time to time I'll have bad days where I do go into a, de a depression state or... I was surrounded by all this wealth and all this fame and all this power, and yet, they were all miserable, and I had never been more miserable. Talking about our the messiness of being human and our hardships and our struggles is what brings us closer together and weirdly what makes everyone happier. Anxiety, I feel like it's, it's definitely being alone in a crowded room. I was making a lot of money, I had a lot of worldly success, and here I was going, okay, I still don't feel any different. And I had banked everything on that making me feel better, or feel happier, or really, honestly, feel worthy. You know, I hear people say, oh, you got the fancy car, and you got the, the jet, and you got the wife, and you got the kids, and you got the life, and you get to travel and speak. But the reality is that doesn't fill me up. I have literally wanted to and attempted to take my own life. I wanted to not be here anymore. And I have millions of followers, and I have all the streams, I got whatever. It doesn't solve your problems. Like, it does not make things go away. And the higher up I go, for some reason, the less happy I am. Then what happened was, I then experienced the things that I was culturally indoctrinated to believe would be a kind of salvation. Fame, fortune, uh, attention. And yet, salvation did not come. Does money bring happiness to you? No. It doesn't feel good all the time, <laughs> in case people think that that's like, it, it, trust me, you need a lot more. Uh, as a Beatle, we made it. 
and there was nothing to do. Uh, we had money, we had uh, fame, and there was no joy. Uh, happy about life and everything because what we got money, well, money doesn't make you happy. It never did. I mean, history will tell you that. And fame certainly doesn't make you happy. You know, I mean, it, it, sometimes it feels absolutely stifling and overwhelming, to be honest with you. And in this case, me gets traumatized by the very thing that I thought would be the bomb. You know, I thought that all would be helped and healed and soothed by fame. They're paying me a ton of money. I'm doing everything I had dreamt of doing for 30 years. It all came true. And I am the least happy I've ever been in my life. There's no amount of money that will ever make you stop if money is what you care about. You'll keep going. Oh, I got a million, gotta get 10, got 10, gotta get 100, got 100, gotta get five, got five, gotta get a billion. It doesn't stop, it keeps calling you, it's like a drug. And depression is your body saying, I don't wanna be this character anymore. I don't wanna hold up this, this avatar that you've created in the world, it's too much for me. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I reached my goal, my dream, my life is, me, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. <laughs> it's like, it's interesting that he said, God, there's got to be more than this. You're like, oh, you almost had it. <laughs> you almost had it. Um, and so you, you find 12-year-olds who sit with more insecurity than the world's rich and famous because they've planted their identity in something that isn't their success. They're chasing something different. I think that's what Solomon gets at. It's the very last thing he says in the book is he says, if you want to actually experience the success of this life, if you really want to find in yourself this notion of identity and value and worthiness, you need to seek something that isn't part of this world because you're not part of this world. Do you understand? You're not just material. Like when you die, your avatar, I love how Jim Carrey puts it, your avatar stays there, but you're not made of your, what makes you you, the thing that craves justice and love and mercy and all the things that make you human have nothing to do, like the, well, how much does justice weigh? What's the atomic number of love? These, they, they, they are not definable in material ideas. So thinking that an immaterial person, that's who I, I'm a soul, thinking that an immaterial soul is gonna be satisfied by material possessions is such a category error that we make. And so let me just conclude by asking you some of these questions. And again, I got, my commitment is I'm, I'm going to be like open and vulnerable. And like it, I don't like telling my story. Like I don't like talking about my wife who died. I don't like talking about a lot of these things. But I think you've earned something better than like a simplistic conversation over a weekend about like, hey, shouldn't we all pray a little bit more? Maybe that's great. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not making fun of that. But, but what I am saying is I want to be in the realm that you think Jesus doesn't want to enter into with you. Like, I, I want to present to you Jesus in real life. I want you to know that God is bigger than the, the tribal Sunday morning, everyone raise your hands and act like you've got it all together, Jesus. And, and that's my commitment to you. And so my commitment to you as we walk out of here is I'm going to ask you to write down four questions. You don't have to. I get some of you, this is going to be a perfect opportunity to prove that you're cool, too cool for school. I get it. I, I was you too. But if you'd be willing to enter into this, I think it can be really healing for a lot of us and really helpful to ask some big questions because you just exist in the noise of life, right? Like the amount of time, if, if we were to pull up your statistics on your phone and find out how much time you spend looking at it every week, um, right? Like you're, you'll spend the, the, the average 16, 17, and 18 year old 
will spend about 40% of their waking life in front of a screen. 40%. And if you live to be 80, that means after you include sleep and screen time, you have a very small actual number of hours that you're going to live without looking at a screen. You're going to be alive and conscious and not asleep, not looking at a screen. This is one of those times. And so maybe just take advantage of it. You don't have to, right? This is a great opportunity for those of you who are like, you're going to go back to your cabin and you fall asleep in the corner because that's like your shtick, you know? I get it. But um, if you want to get these questions answered, I think Hume Lake might be the place to do it. So here's the four questions I want you to walk out asking. The first one is a question of identity. If you can solve, if you could solve these four questions, you'd be a complete person. This is just the truth. If you knew the answer and you lived in the truth of these answers, you would be untouchable. But we've got to be honest in what we think. The first question is on identity. Here's a question. Who am I regardless of where I am? Okay, we, we, the word that we use in the original Latin is this, this item word, I-D-O-M. It's identity. What, who am I when I'm not chameleonically in a group, right? Who is the me that I carry with me everywhere I go, right? You might be, you know, uh, Kevin the basketball player, but then you're like at home, you're like Kevin the son. But, but who, is, who is the deepest version of who you are that doesn't change regardless of where you go? This is called your identity. And you know what's interesting? You know where the word anxiety comes from? It comes from this, this Latin word which means to choke and to divide, and the reason I think that we experience so much identity issue in our culture and so much anxiety is because there's something intrinsic and deep inside of us that knows there's more to life than this, and yet we're being fed this pill like this Solomonic pill from Ecclesiastes that says, go chase this life and it's going to satisfy you. And half of our heart is running towards God, and half of our heart is running towards this world, and that split, that's what the word anxiety means. It means a divided mind, Okay. That word is to divide the mind. So number one is, who are you everywhere you go at your deepest core? Number two is value. You're, you tell yourself a story for why you can come in a room like this and breathe in other people's oxygen, right? You use Earth's resources. You eat food. You do all these things that you do as a human, and you're taking up resources, and you, you have told yourself a story that you have value. For some of you, you think you're valuable because you're pretty. Some of you, you're valuable because people like you. Some of you, you're valuable because you're fast, or you, you're able to make uh, round, inflated objects go into a basket more likely than other people do. And that, that's what gives you worth. And that's what it's your value in. So I want to ask you this question. The first one is, who am I all the time? Number two is... Um, what gives you worth? And maybe a deeper question, why do you think you're worthy of belonging here? What story have you told yourself on why you deserve love and belonging? Number three is this. It's, it's a question of purpose. These are all the questions that Solomon is grasping at. It's what all those people on the screen are fawning for. Number three is purpose. How do I know if I'm a good person? What makes someone a good person? How do I know that I'm, I'm good at life, you know? If I graded you like in math, we would have a test for it. How well do you know your multiplication table? You're way beyond that, but I don't, I don't really know what you do. 
algebraic calculus, whatever you do. Right? You, but you, there's a way of testing how quickly your brain can do mathematical equations. You get a grade on that. But the most important thing that you do is be human. Are you good at that? What does that mean to be good at that? How would you even know? Like, uh, is, your, is, is our plan just we're going to live 75 years and hope someone tells us we did a good job? What are we aiming at? Why do you wake up in the morning? And when you put your head on the pillow at night, do you just have to kind of white noise your day so you don't have to think about these things? When you go to bed tonight, are you closer to being the person you wanted to be when you woke up? Or have you never thought about that before? Who's grading you? And are you doing a good job? And lastly, what's the outcome of all this? I, I think it's too simplistic of a story to say that everything came from nothing and everything's moving towards nothing. And if you've got a question, nothing can solve it. And if you've got these riddles, there is no real answer. I, I just think it's too simplistic. Or me, at least humor the idea that without going into a deep apologetical argument on why you actually shouldn't believe that everything came from nothing, we'll get there some other time, but not right now. If you were to say, like, why do I think all of this is here? And where are we going? What story do you tell yourself? What are you moving towards? What's there when the lights turn off, when everything's over, when you breathe your last breath, when you die? And a lot of us, we just automatically think that I'll start answering that question when I'm 60 because everyone lives to be 70. But I can tell you, after having buried my 28-year-old wife, I wouldn't be so sure and I feel like every breath we take, we're already gambling on borrowed time. And so I love the, the, the culture that Hume Lake creates to, to take us out of screen time and to sit and go, why do I think that one day I'm going to be popular enough and I'm going to be more popular than all those people on the screen? That's the who's who of our world. And they one by one, and I, I cut it off early. I had 24 minutes of those people saying those things. But they make this social contract on the red carpet that they're all going to smile and act like they've got it together. But guess what? At the end of the day, they're just like you and me. They just have so many layers of fake in front of them that you have to really dig in and ask them. But then, didn't they sound a lot like you and me? Weren't they answering questions a lot like you would expect from a 16-year-old girl who's going through it with her friends and is breaking up with her boyfriend? Or a guy who tears his hamstring and no longer can play sports or a girl who's used to being a long jumper and no longer can do that or they sound a lot like us so I don't think the solution is don't worry one day when I have money I'm not going to think about this anymore because Solomon is telling you I've been there and it all feels meaningless to me I wonder what would happen if we just had an honest conversation about these things so there's an answer and I think the answer is better than anything that they've they've postulated better than anything that they've pitched and I found it in hell itself I found it coming out of a season of watching my wife give in to mental illness. There's a better answer than the one that you've probably been fed. And there's a better Jesus than the cultural one that you've expected. I want to talk about him this weekend. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the gift of Hume Lake. Maybe more so than the box sled and the broom hockey and the dining hall and, and the, the snack shack and the cabin time. Maybe more so than all of that, what Hume Lake provides is just a... a a stop button on our life to ask the bigger questions because we all run the risk of waking up and being 75 and having not thought about these things and having to look back on our life and calling it utterly meaningless. We might have had money and fame and power and women and men and relationships and yet we go, but what in the world was my life for? Lord, in your mercy and in your grace, would you allow us to ask honest questions now so that we can set our life on a course that's more meaningful than, than Solomon found? We want that on the deepest level of who we are. Love you. Cheer and pray. Amen.